book of 2 Corinthians as we dig in and, and look at it through the theme of criticism, conviction, and concern. And before you thought, wow, he's got that memorized. There's a TV back there. It says the uh, <laughs> same thing as that. I was really hoping that was going to come up. I knew it was C's. And already this morning I had one person ask me, well, Pastor Lawrence, you're not preaching on suffering this week? And I thought, no, no suffering for me. No, we will be looking at 2 Corinthians, and within that, the broader idea of criticism, conviction, and concern, we're carrying on from where Marlon led us last week, that is, looking at the life of Paul and the other apostles, the difficulties that they faced as apostles, part of this not resume of, of why they should be trusted, but as we're going to look, that there are some teachers, some other leaders in Corinth that are leading people in a different direction, leading them away from Christ. And as Paul is, is pointing to the things that they're going through, it's part of pointing to their credibility. So we're going to read from Second Corinthians chapter 6 through the end of the chapter. We'll pray and then we'll get going. So let's start by reading in 2 Corinthians. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and teach no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's go to the Lord together. God, we thank you for today. And as we come together to your word, Lord, would you lead us in it? Would your spirit open up our eyes to what your word has to say? Would your spirit convict us of those things where we need to be convicted and encouraged where we need to be encouraged? May everything we say and do here this morning be honoring and glorifying to you. And Lord, as you call us to follow you, to serve you in obedience, would you lead us in that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to start right there in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with believers. Now that's an interesting phrase. It's one that we've heard again and again. It's not one that we use all that often. I don't say, well, I'm feeling a little unequally yoked lately. Usually when I think of the term unequally yoked, it means that one egg is bigger than the other. It's a terrible joke. I'm sorry. I didn't tell my wife I was going to say that because I didn't, I didn't want her to roll her eyes at me. No, this, this term unequally yoked, we don't say it very often unless people are saying it to us. Well, you know you shouldn't be unequally yoked. And we say it as if the other person is just going to understand what we mean. Or when we hear it, we think we understand what it means. But more often than not, we have these passages that we, 
we know of or we're familiar with. And we don't take the time to dig deeper into well, what does that actually mean? This morning, we're going to spend some time looking at what Paul actually means. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes on to give several different examples of what he means. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness. If you want to put that in other words, what does obeying the law have to do with not obeying the law? And just like Paul is going to do again and again, these are examples of two things which are diametrically opposed. They could not be any more different. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The answer is none. What accord does Christ have with Belial? That is Satan by another name, or at least Satan as he was described in the intertestamental period. And the answer is none. They can have no relationship. What portion or what share does the believer have with the unbeliever? None. What agreement does the temple of God have with idols? None. So when he says, do not be unequally yoked with believers, it means that there can be no relationship there. But we're not done talking about what that means. Because even within the idea of relationship is the idea of proper relationship. Now, I should have warned you, if you didn't have coffee already, too bad. I'm kidding. No, if you know where to get it, go get some. But my wife made me some, and I'm, I'm afraid of getting parched. And I should have warned you beforehand, my notes are longer than usual. I'm sorry. I really am. I'm, okay, I'm really not, but I felt like I should say that. Um, now, here's one little spot where my, I, I feel like I should also point out, we're going to get into some of the nitty-gritty here. Because within the idea of proper relationship, there seems to be an idea of some inappropriate association. So we're going to be bouncing around to a few different places. But one of the most helpful things we can do in trying to understand 2 Corinthians is being able to go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote more than one letter. He's made more than one visit. And sometimes he references things he's already addressed in a previous writing. And so there is some indication of some inappropriate association going on, we can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Now, we're not going to delve too deeply into this, but Paul says it is so immoral that it's not even heard of among the pagans. And it's happening among the people of Christ. There is a problem here. Or if we go to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He continues, all things are lawful for me, that's a quote, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. 
The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom, uh, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now we need to look at the broader context here. Because you have these snippets of what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. These snippets from 1 Corinthians. But in short, there has been some misunderstanding as to what it means to live in Christ. And Paul rightfully sees a need to correct their understanding, but why has it gotten so muddled? And we can ask that question. How is it that certain things can be happening in the church in Corinth that wouldn't even happen in the outside world? What could be happening among God's people that wouldn't even be happening among those who do not believe? How can this happen in a church that Paul has planted, that other people have been sent to train up and to teach and to raise in maturity? They haven't been left on their own. But something has happened in the church in Corinth which is causing incredibly bad things to be present. Well, and I think part of the answer is that there are false teachers. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, just the, the passage that Marlon shared with us last week, we heard this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. If we skip ahead to where Marlon will be next week, uh, in the second verse of chapter 7, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. This passage is bookended by Paul hoping pleading for the Corinthians to open their hearts up to the apostles. And we can say, why are their hearts closed off to the apostles? Why does Paul feel the need to defend his ministry? Why does he have to respond to criticisms? What has happened in the church that those who were following Paul, who trusted when they believed, who obeyed, whose faith was evident, something's happened. What could it be? Well, the answer seems to be that there have been people who have been teaching in Corinth who have won over their hearts to the point where their hearts are now closed off to the apostles. And Paul feels the need to plead that they would open their hearts back up to them as they have shown themselves to be honest, not striving for any personal gain, but willing to suffer for the sake of the church in Corinth, not for personal gain, but for the gain of that body. Now, we see a number of things, as Paul describes, not just uh, in this place, but throughout the letter, uh, letters to the Corinthians. What sort of people these teachers were. They taught with lofty speech and impressive wisdom. They accused Paul of seeking financial gain. 
They claimed to lead people as spiritual guides. They were arrogant. They were sexually immoral. They used their freedom in Christ to justify their continued sin. And they led others by their own example into idolatry. They commingled the gospel and sin together and called it righteousness. Or worse, they used their freedom in Christ in such a manner that it led others into worship of another God. Whether that was through taking part in food that was offered to idols, or whether that was taking part in worship that was of other gods and far more defiling. And yet for Paul, according to Scripture, it is clear that believers were to have no part in this sin. And yet these teachers encouraged them in it. Now, Paul does make some distinctions. What does it mean to not be unequally yoked to unbelieving spouses? What does it mean in regard to associating with unbelievers? Now, if we take 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that's where Paul starts to describe how should the gospel play out in the marriage. Well, if we put it in a nutshell, it's that singleness is good and it allows the believer to focus solely on God. In fact, if you look at that passage, Paul is responding to a specific quote, that it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. And what Paul is saying is, yes, yes, that's true. That's not to say that we're now putting this thing on the gospel where if you're going to follow, you need to do this one thing. He says, not everyone is going to be like me. Not everyone is going to have the same gift that I have. And Paul was speaking specifically about this gift of singleness, that in his singleness... He also had single-mindedness, that he didn't have to care for a spouse. He didn't have to care for the needs of a family. He could devote his time and his energy to one thing, and that was his preaching and proclaiming of the gospel. But he realizes not everyone is going to be the same as me. That for some people there will be a need for a spouse. And so it is not a bad thing for people to join in a marital union, to be kept from temptation. But he also says, if you're married to an unbeliever and they want to stay with you, or they agree to continue living with you, good. That can be a very good thing. Do not leave them, but demonstrate Christ's love to them. And in that relationship, you might win them to Christ. But he also says, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they choose to leave because of all that's happening in your life as you are transforming in your relationship with Christ, you are not bound to them. Again, in a nutshell, none of this is based in selfish means, but on what best enables us to serve Christ. Clearly, none of this is approving of the sin that Paul is addressing. So we might say, well, maybe then it's simply associating with people who are sinners. Now, Paul does address this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, see, there it is. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Clearly, there is a standard of morality for those that are in Christ. And Paul is instructing us to avoid all sexual immorality, having been saved from it. And to avoid association with anyone who would call themselves a brother or sister. He doesn't say, look, here are these people who do not know Christ. Expect them to live as if they do. Uh, there have been some who have made the mistake to say we need to be away from all sin. Which means they then separate from themselves from people who need to be saved from sin. No, instead, it's not that we're to avoid those people, but rather those who would call themselves a brother or sister in Christ and yet live in the same sin that would say that they're not a brother or sister in Christ. Those who would say, I follow the gospel, and yet whose lives and the sin evident within their lives is contrary to the gospel. And Paul gives some examples of this in 1 Corinthians. Even the simple thing where I have the freedom to eat whatever God provides for me, and yet if I choose to eat of this food that's offered to these idols which are false gods and it's not really given to anyone, I can eat freely of it. But if someone else sees me eating that, and they see that as a Christian I can also participate in the worship of these other gods, and they don't know any better, then they might be led to believe that Worshipping Christ and worshipping these other gods can be done at the same time, which they can't. And up to the point where Paul says, I can eat whatever I want, but I choose not to for the sake of the gospel. And at least here, you've got teachers who seem to be indicating that you can live in Christ and yet pursue these, these sexual things which are not appropriate for the believer, these things which are not heard of even among the pagans, but are present in the church. There is a problem. There is an issue. And it should not be there because it's muddying up the gospel. It's confusing people's faith. John Calvin wrote nearly 500 years ago, No poison, therefore, is more dangerous than those allurements that encourage us in our sins. Let us therefore shun, not as the songs of sirens, but as the deadly bites of Satan, the talk of profane persons when turning the judgment of God and reproofs of sin into matter of jest. Sin is a problem. And to pretend like it isn't does a disservice to us. It does a disservice to anyone who would look at us and ask what our faith means. Now the point here is that we who are in Christ cannot go on living like those who are not. As righteousness and lawlessness cannot have partnership, as light and darkness cannot have fellowship, as Christ and Satan cannot have accord, as a believer and unbeliever cannot share in the same portion, the same hope in Christ, and the temple of God and idols cannot have any agreement, so we cannot participate in the same sin as those who do not know Christ. And not just because it muddies the gospel, but because it contaminates our own faith. Now we're going to look next to verses 16 through 18. And in it we have a large section, and in your Bibles you're going to see a spot that looks like it's a large quotation. And that's good, and it's a problem at the same time. 
Now, we have this sort of discipline that we have, and my kids have learned it. When I was a kid, I learned it. It's where we memorized verses. And so the point where you could say, oh, that verse, that's from Romans 6.12, and we'd learn the chapter number, and we'd learn the verse number, and the problem that comes up with that is that was an invention that came along the way. When the apostles were teaching, when Jesus was teaching, they didn't quote like that. In fact, Jesus would say, the prophet said, and sometimes he'd quote from more than one prophet. And in this section, Paul is not giving us exact references. In fact, he's doing something far more complicated and frustrating. He's quoting from a lot of different places and mashing them together. And in his quote, he says, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Several passages jammed together. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Again, several passages jammed together. And Believe it or not, verse 18, and I will be, sorry, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And again, it's an amalgamation of different passages. And the reason Paul does this is he's trying to appoint, to point to a consistent theme that happens in Scripture. You can look here, and 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 they're all going to look very similar that there is a pattern that happens as God relates to people in how we can be restored to Him. And so if we look at these, there's three distinct sections. This process of repentance that was true then and remains true now. That God moves, we respond, and we're restored into relationship. Here's a little hint. It's the Gospel. Let's start with that first piece, God moves. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. There are echoes there of the garden where there is humanity in perfect relationship with God. And yet something happens in the garden which breaks that relationship, which creates separation from God. And it's sin. Sin has been a problem from the very beginning. It has plagued human history from the very first of our ancestors. And yet God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. That that separation will be no more. But there will be a connection. There will be intimacy between God and man. He says, I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And that sounds obvious. And yet you understand that the people of God have often followed after other gods. They pursued whatever they like. Whatever they like to hear. They are a people who... Go where their, their feelings lead them. They are described as stubborn and stiff-necked. And yet God is saying, I will restore my people. That I will be their God. They will be my people. That there will no longer be anyone else between us. No issues, no difficulties, no sin, no idolatry. I will restore my people to me. That rather than being enemies of God, we will be at peace with our Creator. He moves first. He forgives the betrayal. And He extends the message of peace to us. And then you have that next piece. It says, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. 
that God first moves and then we respond. Go out from their midst. There is an expected response of us. Just like uh, if we hear echoes of the people of Israel being called out from the other nations, that you will not serve their gods, that you will not observe their customs, that you will be different in the land for my name's sake. It shouldn't be any surprise that as we are now looking at being those who inherit the promise of what God would do for his people, we, we can't expect that if God called Israel to be different from the nations, that we're going to see again as Christ is calling his disciples, those who would follow him, to be different from those who are pursuing righteousness according to their own means. That it's going to look very different. You cannot live as those around you because you don't hold to the same hope as those around you. And so we must leave the camp that we're in and be separate from those who are still at war. Be separate from them. There are echoes here of Deuteronomy 7, 14, 26, where Israel was a people called out again from the nations to be for God a treasured possession. As such, they were to be separate from the surrounding nations. And then you have this next piece, and touch no unclean thing. How were they separate? How were they called out from the other nations? They obeyed a specific set of laws and commands meant to distinguish them. Meant to point the nations around them to God. Called to be different. Called to be holy. Called to be obedient. That this people would live so differently from the nations around them that people would wonder what is at work among them. And then you have that third piece. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. They will not be treated as enemies, but friends. Not only friends, but like children, loved and provided for. More than adopted children, but heirs. Those that are given all that belongs to the Father. And so we think through this like a process. Though we are enemies of God, He draws near to us. He asks only that we draw near to Him. And in doing so, that we might be restored to Him. But there is a problem that we cannot be restored to God unless we leave behind what separated us from Him. Or to put it in other words, we remain separated from God as long as we remain joined to sin. We can have one or the other, but we cannot have both. And so we have this rhetorical question that comes up as we look at this passage. Would we continue to be enemies of God if He offered us restoration and reconciliation? No. Why, Why would you do that? Why would you remain enemies of the God of the universe who will judge His enemies in wrath if He said, I will forgive you if you draw close? You wouldn't do it. If, if you were offered a ceasefire when you were hopefully, sorry, hopelessly outgunned with no hope on your own, and he said, I will make peace with you even though you have angered me, you wouldn't say no to that. Why then would we continue down a road that we know only leads to death, pursuing sin when we have freedom from sin? It doesn't make any sense. 
Jim Elliot said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We can hold on to our lives of sin where we can pursue whatever fruits we can find in this life, but we know that in contrast to eternity, it's worth nothing. And so God says, give me this thing which is worthless, and I will give you this thing which is worth everything. Give me something which is perishable, and I will give you something eternal. Leave behind what is of no worth. And I will give you everything. And it makes no sense that we would say, "Eh, no, I kind of like this. No, I kind of like death. There was an issue with the faith of some in the church of Corinth. They knew the life-changing hope of Christ, but they lived as if they didn't. Their lives looked just like those who didn't believe, and they were taking part in the same sin as those who were still enemies of Christ. In the same arrogance, in the same immorality, and in the same carelessness that muddied and distorted the gospel. Something must be different. We cannot go on sinning as we did before. We cannot follow after teachers who would lead us contrary to Christ. We cannot pretend that we follow Christ and live as enemies of the cross. It is not enough to be different, not that we could do that on our own. We must be transformed. As Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. See, what Paul is saying is, we have what is better. Since we have these promises, beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. We have God Himself who has made peace with us and said, if you leave behind this sin, I will give you life eternal. If you follow Me and lay your life down, I will give you life that does not end. You will not thirst anymore. You will not hurt anymore. We have the promise of salvation, of hope in Christ alone. He is our righteousness. He is our light. He is our portion. And so if we have what is better, then we let go of all else. No longer giving ourselves over to lawlessness or deeds done in darkness, to idolatry and sins committed in unbelief. 
No, we have what is better, so we let go of all else and we worship God in holiness, cleansing ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. But we cannot do this on our own. And by God's grace, we don't have to. God has drawn near to us. He invites us to draw near to Him and to allow His Spirit to transform us. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The command to not be unequally yoked is one we hear all the time, but we so often fail to understand what it means. If we want to put it differently, the command to to not be unequally yoked could also be described as not hitching your wagon to the wrong horse. Is that one that, that, that resonates with people? I had it backwards. I I kept saying, don't hitch your horse to the wrong wagon. Somehow that made sense to me. No, don't hitch your wagon to the wrong horse. It means the same thing. So often we give ourselves to the wrong people, the wrong things, even the wrong ideals. This isn't a new thing. Paul writes to Timothy of the hardship that the church would come to face. He says this in 2 Timothy, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I just want to pause and notice that that's in the same list as all the other things. Disobedient to their parents, they are ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, 
and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God has already given us His Spirit to lead and convict us. He's given His Word to also teach and correct us. Now, many of us here have committed to trust and follow after Jesus, but I would venture to say that there are still many among us who are still clinging tightly to sins that we ought to have put to death a long time ago. To use the analogy again, we have hitched our wagons not only to the wrong horse, but to a dead horse, to something which we know only leads to death. Even while we have the promise of life in Christ. And I would encourage you this morning, bring your burdens to Jesus. Lay your sin and your shame humbly at His feet and leave it there. Let Him lead you into new life and do not look back. And as the Spirit leads us into true repentance and obedience, we walk alongside others who need help putting those same sins to death, just as we needed help. It is good work. It is hard work. And it is work that will not end while we still breathe. But that is the process of sanctification, of being continually transformed out of sin and into holiness declaring with every fiber of our being that Jesus is Lord and bringing into submission any piece of ourselves that does not honor Him. This morning I want to close with this encouragement that Paul gives us. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. And we thank you that you are good and holy. And we thank you that you do not leave us the same as you found us. Instead, you give us your spirit, which helps us to go beyond ourselves. To trust in you and we couldn't do it on our own to be humble when our, our natural position is to be proud. That by Your Spirit You allow us to see our desperate need for You when, when by nature we tend to think of how great we are and how well we can do things on our own. And, and sometimes You allow our entire worlds to come crashing down so that we can see just how desperately we need You. God, it is a thing that so many of us fall into where we grow complacent in our faith. Where we think we've, we've gotten good enough. Where we've given you enough of ourselves. And yet, you give us permission to lay all of that ugliness down. To be transformed into completely new people. And yet, that out of fear, or out of desperation, or out of something else, we cling to these sins that we're just not ready to let go of yet. God... Would you help us in humility to say, take these things from me. God, help us to embrace that freedom, knowing you have drawn near to us. You have given us your spirit. There is nothing else that we need.
And while it's true that, that in this life we'll never be free from sin, as we walk with you, it makes sense that we will grow with you. As you shape and mold us, it makes sense that you will help us to find rough spots that still need to be smoothed. Parts that need to be carved out. Things that we still hold to of our former selves that you have given us permission. You even called us out to be transformed, to be made new, to be completely different people because of the power that you have at work in us through your Spirit. Help us to repent, to leave those sins behind, and in so doing, to demonstrate to all those who knew the people we used to be that your power is great enough to transform even sinners like us. Be honored in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Lawrence. One of the great motivations for that process of sanctification in our lives and to separate ourselves from sin and continue to uh, be more and more like Christ is the fact that He is returning. And uh, we will be like Him. And as we have that hope of His return, we continue to purify our lives. I'm going to ask you to stand and sing our final hymn. Uh, along those lines, Jesus is coming again.